Let's contemplate our motivation. And although when we reflect, we cannot find any findable persons when we search with ultimate analysis. Still, that doesn't negate the existence of conventionally existent persons that are unfindable, that exist like illusions, that exist by being merely labeled. And so even though sentient beings exist in this way, it's worthy to and meaningful to work for their benefit. And in fact, because sentient beings are empty, their suffering can be eliminated. So let's generate compassion and bodhicitta for these sentient beings that are unfindable when searched for in their basis of designation. And let's generate that bodhicitta with a lot of energy, wanting to attain enlightenment that also exists like an illusion and is merely labeled for the benefit of all those sentient beings. That's a very important point. Sometimes when we meditate uh, on the emptiness of inherent existence of sentient beings and we subject them to ultimate analysis and can't find some any truly existent sentient beings, we start to doubt, well, who in the world are we having compassion for? <laughs> and who in the world is there that's going to attain enlightenment? You know, they're just like illusions. So why am I going through all this effort if they exist like illusions? Yeah. So, you know, th- I mean, this is the way our mind thinks, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, they're all illusory. So their suffering's illusory. So if it's illusory, there's, you know, nothing to eliminate. So let's just relax about it. Yeah. Why am I putting all this effort into getting enlightened? But the whole thing is that it's because sentient beings don't exist truly that they can become enlightened. It's because uh, suffering is empty of inherent existence that it can be eliminated. In other words, if things were truly existent, if they were findable under ultimate analysis, they would be permanent and fixed and couldn't be changed at all. Yeah. So all these sentient beings exist like illusions. You can't find them when you're looking for them. They just completely evaporate. But when you don't look, they're there as is their dukkha and as is their potential enlightenment. So you can see here how uh, bodhicitta and emptiness can help each other. Yeah. But it's hard because whenever we can't find something under ultimate analysis, then we just go, it doesn't exist. Yeah. And then when we talk of it existing, we think it truly exists. We're extremists. Sign up. <laughs> okay, so um, before I went to Mexico, uh, left you with a um, a quiz. So I heard you got through 
nine of the questions, and there's just number 10 and 11, right? Okay, so let's start with those. So number 10 says, how does meditating on mindfulness phenomena lead to understanding the true path? So, what do you think? What's the relationship between meditating on mindfulness phenomena and understanding the true path? Uh huh. Okay, so when we, the, the mental factors are the primary thing and the meditation of the uh, phenomena. And by doing that, by meditating on them, we see what to cultivate and what to abandon. And by practicing the path, that makes us cultivate some and abandon others. Okay, what else? So that's one reason. What else? I have um, that by identifying them, the afflictive ones, that how they arise to actually understand how does our mind feel when it's under the control of afflictive states of mind, mm-hmm. is that then we get to start to figure out how they affect the way that we act, the way that we speak, the way that we think, that is in opposition to our wish to become liberated and become mm-hmm. light for the benefit of others. Yeah. And then we get to see how they, the disadvantages and the advantages and then when it comes to the virtuous ones, then we learn to see how they feel in our minds, what's the flavor, and how we respond with our body, speech, and mind. Mm-hmm. So then we can see what is it that we have to do to gain liberation and awakening so that we can benefit others. So it's, 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 it's exactly on how do we practice the path if we want to mm-hmm. liberate ourselves, which is the third level of truth. So okay, that's, that's basically what, what oh, okay. she said. Yeah, they're seeing the disadvantages of the afflicted ones, the benefit of the other ones, then you know what to practice in the path. Okay? So that, that's one way, but there's another way that, that it's related to the true path. That gets at the root. What else? Breaking down the mind into different parts helps us to loosen the concept of the solid eye. Ah, you're getting there. Keep going. Keep going. The mental factors are not the mind if they are pervade the mind, and the self is not any of the mental factors. It's not the, uh, the mental factors aren't inherently existent. The abandonment, the cultivating are not inherently existent, yet conventionally these mental factors are what we need to understand to become liberated. So it's about loosening up the sense of self, about the mental factors, who's having them, liberation, and at the same time, on a conventional level, level, we do need to understand what they are. So mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the difference between what we think they are, who the I is that's under the control of them, both virtuous and non-virtuous, and then also to realize that the liberation that we seek also and the awakening is empty of any solid, concrete mm-hmm. existence. Mm-hmm. On a conventional level, there is something there. Yeah, you're, you're kind of getting it. <laughs> but you didn't say how that specifically relates to true path. How? By uh, seeing the emptiness of everything, especially of the self. You have to get rid of the aggregates. If you don't, if you hold on to the aggregates, you're going to eventually come back and hold on to the self. Okay, so if you're grasping at the true existence of the aggregates, which include the mental factors, then you're going to grasp at the true existence of the person. Because you haven't taken care of everything. Yeah. You have something behind that's going to then come back and right. cause you to grasp again. Yeah, so you have to 
realize the emptiness of all phenomena, not just of the person. Because if you still grasping at the true existence of the mental factors, then you're going to grasp at them or something about the person is truly existent. Another thing is when we look at the basis upon which we impute person, aren't the mental factors part of that basis? Oh, yeah, they're part of the basis. Yeah, so we've seen that the body isn't the self, the feelings aren't the self, the mind isn't the self, and now the mental factors aren't the self. Yeah, so wherever we look in the aggregates, we can't find any sort of self that exists from its own side. So this is what is to be realized by true paths. Okay, that's how it's related to true paths. Okay, so there's no other self aside from the one that exists by being merely labeled. Okay, and so this merely labeled I is the one that's in samsara, it's the one that practices the path, it's the one that attains enlightenment. But it's unfindable. It's not the body, it's not the feelings, it's not the mind, it's not the mental factors. And it's not something that's totally separate from all of those either. Okay? So that's realizing that is the true path. And that true path is what leads us to the true cessations. Got it? Don't forget it. Okay. Then the um, uh, the eleventh question was: How does the way the hearers and solitary realizers meditate on the four establishments of mindfulness differ from the way the bodhisattvas meditate on them? And how is the bodhisattva way of meditating on them superior? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hearers and solitary realizers meditate on their own body and mm-hmm. mind, phenomena, etc., just from their own side, whereas um, those in the Mahayana uh, think of all beings. Mm-hmm. Okay, so part of it has to do with the observed object, whether you're meditating on your own body feelings mind and mental factors, or those of all others. Okay, so that, that's one difference. What's another one? The Mahayana motivation. Um, yeah, okay. So that's going to affect what you attain from meditating. Um, right? Because with a Mahayana motivation, you're going to attain full enlightenment. Without that Mahayana motivation, you're going to attain the enlightenment of a hearer or a solitary realizer. Okay? So the different, there's a difference in the objects. There's a difference in the attainment. And it's all in the root text. All in the root text. What were you guys doing? Yeah, okay. So what you're paying attention to is different. The hearers and solitary realizers are paying attention to the duke, the nature of dukkha, the impermanence and the lack of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. And the bodhisattvas are paying attention to what? The exact lack of inherent existence. Okay, so look in your outline. What are the three points and how it differs? Just before the 14, about how it's superior. Look in your root text. 
It's laid out there. One, two, three. No, the section before that, the, the, the thing of 1 through 14 is how the Bodhisattva's way is superior. What's the section before that? Okay. The object, the attention, and the attainment. Okay. Okay. So the object whether it's your own body feelings and so on, or others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The attention, whether it's impermanence, dukkha, and the self-sufficient, substantial existence, selflessness, or whether it's the emptiness of true existence. And the attainment, whether you have the motivation for our hardship and attain that, the, the enlightenment of a hearer or solitary realizer, or whether you attain the enlightenment of a Buddha. Okay, yeah, which is non-abiding nirvana. What does non-abiding nirvana mean? What are you not abiding in? Samsara, self-complacent peace. Okay, samsara and self-complacent peace. What's self-complacent peace? Well, that's... Uh Liberation, where you have freed you, you have you understand the emptiness of self. You have liberated yourself from the cycle of samsara. You've gone into bliss through the realizing emptiness, and you stay in there forever. And you're totally blissed out, and you're not. But yet, you still don't have the. Uh, you've got the. Uh, uh, have uh, eliminated the afflictive obscurations, mm-hmm. but you haven't eliminated the um, cognitive obscurations, right. which is the the appearance of inherent existence. Yeah. So you've gotten halfway there, but you're not all the way to Buddha. But okay. Space okay. And who is it that has that kind of attainment? It's the um, the arhats, mm-hmm. the um, solitary realizers, and the hearers. Yeah. The hearer and solitary realizer arhats, okay, have that attainment where they've eliminated the afflictive obscurations but not the cognitive obscurations. And so therefore it's said they abide in personal peace. Okay. Whereas the bodhisattvas want to go beyond that. And that's with remainder because of the a cognitive obscuration is not right. eliminated. Yeah. Okay. So it has the remainder of the cognitive obscurations. And uh, nirvana without remainder is when you don't have those. Okay. Okay, we're getting there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like pulling teeth, huh? (laughs) Okay. So um, when is it that you don't have the cognitive obscurations? Or when when is it that you, yeah, have nirvana with, with remainder? And nirvana without it. Depends on our strength system we're talking about. Because the lawyer schools assert that the nirvana with the remainder just means that one still has the body, mm-hmm. and aggregates, and after mm-hmm. death there's a nirvana without remainder, which is very non-hot. Yeah. And then the prasamika is what Rizal said that with remainder is. Just means that there's still cognitive obscurations. So only a full Buddha would have the nirvana without remainder that Okay. So uh, who has, um, who does not have the appearance of true existence? Buddha. Buddha, and who else? Huh? Yeah, anybody would meditate at points. Anybody who's meditating on it? When you meditate? With direct perception. So when you're in meditative equipoise on emptiness, you don't have the appearance of true existence. Yeah, path of seeing and above. Okay. But only Buddhists don't have it all the time. Right, yeah. Okay, kind of getting there. (laughs) Good. Okay, so how is the meditation on the four foundations of mindfulness of the bodhisattvas superior to that of the hearers and solitary realizers? Well, 
There's 14 ways, so explain them. <laughs> the first is the Bodhisattva's practice is aimed towards full enlightenment with the great compassion Bodhicitta. Mm-hmm. Uh, it relies on the wisdom that understands the lack of the self of phenomena. Mm-hmm. Um, it acts as a remedy to the 16 mistaken views. Okay, what are the 16 mistaken views? Um, when we talk about the Four Noble Truths, there's 16 aspects. Um, uh, Isn't it all those emptinesses? Hmm? No, it's not the 16 emptinesses. What are the 16 mistaken views here? That you want to list of them? Huh? Or just just in general? What are it's what those 16 attributes of the Four Noble Truths uh, counteract, counteract. Yeah, so, so what, it's what the 16 attributes of the Four Noble Truths counteract. Okay. Those is the ones about permanence and that uh, yeah. being the, the nature of suffering, although perceived as happiness, uh-huh. self is, uh, self, selfless, counteracting that. And I mean the selflessness counteracting seeing the self as... Yeah. Not the four seals, the four distortions. The four distortions, okay. What? Yeah, those are the ones relating to the first noble truth. Okay. Yeah, we'll go through the 16 um, probably later on, you know, when we cover the paths and stages or something. Okay, um, so its aim is the Mahayana. It relies on the wisdom that understands the selflessness of phenomena. It acts as a remedy to those 16 distorted mm-hmm. views. What else? Engages us in meditation on the Four Noble Truths. Okay, how does it do that? Each one of the objects of the four establishments relates to one of the Noble Truths. Mm-hmm. Body relates to truth of dukkha. Mindfulness of feelings relate to the orig- origin of dukkha. The second noble truth. Mindfulness of mind relates to true cessation, and mindfulness of phenomena relates to true paths. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> what? Do you understand what that means? Okay. Yeah. How? It takes a while to get it out of your mouth. Yeah. And it takes a while to understand it how each one of the mindfulnesses relates to each one of the noble truths and relates to each one of the four distortions. Especially the third. The third is the hardest. The cessation. Yeah. 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 The impermanence of the mind mm-hmm. helps you see that it's not so substantial. And you kind of lose the self because you can't ever find this inherent existence. Yeah. Yeah. But the, and the feelings and the mental, life. but the mind, you know, it's like there's something in that mind that is really me, yeah. When you realize that that's, there's nothing in the mind that's really me, then you can actualize the true cessations. Okay. <laughs> you can actualize it because this is where I was tricky. You can actualize it because it fuels your desire to to really meditate on emptiness, or because mm-hmm. you're seeing, because you get that level of subtlety with your meditation that's so clear that you can see the clear and aware nature of the mind. You see that things that you thought was there aren't are just mm-hmm. yeah. It, it's for all those reasons. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, I mean, when you really investigate mind, you come to see how attaining enlightenment is possible because you see that all these 
defiled mental states are impermanent. And if they're impermanent, they can't be the nature of the mind because they aren't always there. So if they aren't the nature of the mind, then they can be eliminated, which means you can attain true cessation. So mindfulness of the mind helps you gain ascertainment that attaining true cessation is possible. And then also when you see the emptiness of the mind, it helps you overcome the grasping at phenomena as well as the grasping at persons, the self of of both phenomena and persons, and therefore it helps you attain true cessation. Okay? Because, you know, they always, sometimes when you're studying emptiness, they really emphasize the emptiness of the person, but then you keep hearing again and again the emptiness of the mind, the emptiness of the mind. Well, why is that? Why is the emptiness of the mind stressed so much? Why not just the emptiness of the person? Yeah, that is because the mind is what we kind of instinctively grasp at as being the person. So if the mind is empty, there's no truly existent mind there, then there also can't be a truly existent person there. And then it seems if that, if we really got that, then the issue about the phenomena would just come right along with it. Yeah, that's the point. I see, okay. Yeah, that it helps you realize the selflessness of both persons and phenomena. Okay, why else is the Bodhisattva meditation on the four establishments superior? Again, Bodhisattvas meditate on body, feeling, mind, and phenomena in relationship to all sentient beings, not just in this relationship to themselves. Okay, so meditating on, you know, on the four establishments regarding all sentient beings, not just themselves. So that's very, very powerful, isn't it? Okay. What else? Practice the... Let's have somebody else find the passage so that they can also read it. (laughs) (laughs) This was your question, right? That's your only question. Yeah. She was ready. Huh? This was the one she was prepared to answer. Oh, okay. So what's number six? to the body and so forth of being empty of inherent existence. Okay. So why does that make it superior? Because it is empty of inherent existence and not empty of a self-sufficient substantial existence. Person. Okay, so it's a deeper level of emptiness. Mm-hmm. Okay. Seven? Helps us to obtain an uncluded body at the path of seeing Mm-hmm. Okay, so it helps you attain a mental body which is unpolluted, which is not polluted by afflictions and karma. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that speeds your way to enlightenment. At the end, you actually have to abandon this mental body too because it's taken under the, um, the, effect, the uh, influence of cognitive obscurations. But still, it's much more settled than the, the gross body that we have. Okay, then eight. <laughs> Nobody can read number eight. Okay, it accords with the six far-reaching practices. What does that mean? Why does that? What makes that a bodhisattva practice? I mean, everybody practices generosity and ethical conduct and patience and joyous effort and medi- you know, concentration and and uh, wisdom. So what makes it far reaching? So you see the agent, the object, the action all being empty of any inherent existence. Okay. So you re- you see the agent, object and action of all six of those as empty of inherent existence and you're doing it with the bodhicitta. Okay, so that makes those practices far-reaching. Okay, number nine. So what does that mean? Well, it's 
you don't leave them behind. Yeah. You've got a place for them to enter to become a Buddhist. Okay. So, so it's a superior practice of bodhisattvas because you're caring for, for other senti- for ordinary sentient beings, for hearers, for solitary realizers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you haven't abandoned other sentient beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you respect what they're doing. Okay. Then ten... Okay, so why is it important to see the body as like an illusion, the feelings as dream, the mind like space, and phenomena like clouds? Why is that important? So we don't grasp. Yeah. It really helps to... Verify the unfindability of body feelings, mind, and phenomena by seeing these metaphors because we yeah. see them in our world as being so transitory, easily to comprehend with our understanding of how things come and go. So, right. using them really powerfully to help. Yeah, so the, the metaphors are very good to keep reminding us. Mm-hmm. Like, look at the one of seeing the phenomena as like clouds. In your daily life, when you have different moods, different mental factors are arising, so you have different moods. Do you see your moods like clouds? <laughs> or, do you see, or do you see your mood like lead? <laughs> okay, there's the cloud mood and the lead mood. Okay, there's the cloud mood and the lead mood. We usually see our moods as lead, don't we? They're quite solid. Yeah, it's very helpful when you remember this metaphor. And Oh, all my moods are like clouds, and the clouds are just passing through the sky. They aren't the nature of the sky. They aren't there permanently. Okay, we have to remember this one. Okay, if we remember that our moods are like clouds, we're going to be a lot happier. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to be a whole lot easier to get along with. <laughs> yeah, Because when we grasp onto our moods as real and permanent, you know, then they become so incredibly important. And we blame others for our moods. And then they have to, we expect them to do something to change our moods. Because our moods are their fault, we get all tangled up, you know. But when we see our moods as clouds, then there's, you know, we see come, come, go, go. So why grasp? Yeah. Yeah. And if you think of it, you know, were you in a bad mood sometime today? (laughs) Of course. Of course. Right. So at some time today, everybody was in a bad mood. Is your bad mood still existing right now? It better not be. <laughs> yeah. So is your bad mood like a cloud? Yeah. When you were in a good mood because you got praised or you got something you like, is that around right now? If it does, I'll criticize you. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> so is your good mood also like a cloud? Yes. Yeah, so the good moods are rising from attachment. The bad moods are rising from anger. Come, come, go, go. Okay. Maybe we should put a picture of clouds, like, you know, in the bathroom mirror, with, with, and write this little quote, you know, so that we can remember it. Drop little cotton balls from the ceiling. <laughs> Paste little cotton balls on the mirror. <laughs> yeah. But that's, the, the cotton balls are too solid. Okay. Then, um, 11? In accord with our intention, we will be born in cyclic existence as a real turning monarch and so forth. Okay. So, um, I mean, we've been seeing examples of people having lots of power and creating all sorts of havoc, but a bodhisattva who would be able to be a real turning king with all that power and majesty and wealth and status could actually 
use it to be of great benefit. Yeah. Okay. So for a bodhisattva, being born with social prestige or power or wealth or something like that enables them to be of more benefit to sentient beings. Whereas for ordinary people, we get attached to those things and then it often leads to our downfall. Okay. Then, 12? We will have naturally sharp faculties. So what does that mean, having naturally sharp faculties? Wisdom, a tendency to wisdom. Yeah, okay. So having a tendency to wisdom. So why, if you practice these uh, with a bodhisattva motivation or as a bodhisattva, does that increase your wisdom? You would study more things because you have to help everyone. Right, because you have to study more things and especially approach emptiness from many different angles so that you can help all the different sentient beings. Yeah. So you don't just take one approach to emptiness, you take many, many approaches. So that your your understanding of emptiness is much richer, much more comprehensive. Okay. Then thirteen. Meditation on the establishment of mindfulness is not mixed with a fundamental vehicle aspiration. Okay. What does that mean? Fundamental vehicle aspiration is to attain our own liberation. Mm-hmm. Bodhisattva practice is not mixed with this type of motivation. It's focused on full awakening for the benefit of all. Yeah, okay. So we're focused on full awakening. And 14? Yeah, we attain nirvana without remainder, so we already discussed that. Okay, whereas the arhats have nirvana with remainder because they have the remainder of the cognitive obscurations. What are the cognitive obscurations? The appearance of inherent existence. The appearance of inherent existence and... Yeah, yeah, that, that's included, seeing subject and object to do as dual. But what else? The appearance of true existence. Yeah, the subtle latencies of the afflictions, because it's them that bring about the appearance, or, or sometimes appearance can be translated as perception of true existence. That word mangwa, that's translated sometimes as appearance and sometimes as perception. It's, it's a little bit difficult because if you say it's the appearance of true existence, it sounds like from the side of phenomena they're appearing as true existence. But that's not the problem. The problem is the veil in our mind that makes us have that appearance, that makes us perceive uh, phenomena as truly existent. Yeah, the latencies of the afflictions cause that appearance or cause that perception. Yeah. So, so it's not really two things, it's really that one. If we, what are the cognitive the obscurations, there's two. Okay. One, one is the latencies, uh-huh. and what they bring is the appearance or the perception. So there's two. Because why not just say perception? Because you have to talk about what's causing that. What's causing that perception, which is the latencies of the afflictions. No, rather than say appearance, why not just say perception? Yeah. Well, you could say perception. Yeah. This sounds more accurate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> we could. <laughs> I'm wondering how you did on the other ones. I, I, um, when I prepared the quiz, I put, I wrote out the questions and I put the answers in it. So I'll leave this for you, and you can look at it and see if what you did. Yeah, how you did the last two sessions, if you got it right. <laughs> Okay, so now we're going to continue with Shanti Deva. We were talking about the um, the four establishments of mindfulness from the viewpoint of the Bodhisattva. Okay, where we're going into 
a more subtle approach to the four establishments because we're looking at their non-inherent existence. Okay? So we started talking about that, um, the selflessness of phenomena in relationship to the establishment of the body. So last time we were talking about how, um, you know, the body isn't any of the of the uh, parts of the body, and yet it also isn't separate from the body. So when we were talking about verse 80, verse 80 said, if this body were located with a portion in, if, in each of these parts, and its parts are located in their parts, where does it stand by itself? So what we're asking here is if you think of the body as a single whole unit, and then you ask, does a portion of the body exist in each part? Or does a whole body exist in each part? So does a portion of the body exist in your stomach and a portion in your intestine and a portion in your tongue? No, because even if you had a portion of the body in each part of the body, still when you collected it together, you wouldn't have a whole body, you would just have a bunch of portions. Okay. Now, do you have a whole body in each part of the body? No, because if you did, then you would have as many bodies as you do parts of the body, because each part would be a separate body. Yeah. So this one's really interesting when you really get into it and think about it. I mean, sometimes this one, when, when you just say it, it's like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, so what? But when you really think of it, you know, it's like you sit there with your body. Yeah? And yeah, I have a body. Here's, here's my body. Now, because we feel that, don't we? We say, here's my body, and we feel, here's my body. Now, is there a portion of the body in each part? You kind of look at your hand. Is there a portion of the body in each in my hand? And part of you goes, yeah, there's a portion of the body there. There's a portion of the body there, and a portion of the body here, and a portion of the body there. And it looks like there's a portion of the body in each part, doesn't it? And that, therefore, when you put all the parts together, you have a whole body. But if you have all these portions and you put all the portions together, why, does it, why do you have a whole body? Don't you just have a collection of portions? So what's the difference between a collection of portions and a whole body? What's the difference? The label. The label. And the concept of it. Yeah. Yeah. If, yeah, if you didn't have the concept body, you know, then what do you have? You just have a bunch of different things. Yeah. But because we have the concept and we give it the label, then we have a body. So when you look at it, you know, it's like, oh yeah, portion of the body here, portion of the body here, yeah. Put it all together, get a body. And then you stop and think, well, do you really get a body if you put all these things together? How does collecting each of those things, which is not a body, give you a body? It's like collecting a bunch of oranges and you get an apple. Yeah? So you really sit with that for a minute. You know, because it goes against our feeling. No, you put all these together and there's a body. But, well, no... There's no body there. There's still just a collection of portions. So how, do you, how does a body come about? How do you get a body in this? And that's when you begin to see, oh, the body is merely labeled. You know, my mind creates a concept, and it's my mind that ties all these portions together to make a body. Yeah, so, you know, we're investigating here, how does the body really exist? And we see that our instinctive notion doesn't make sense. 
So then you go, okay, well, each part of my... There's not a portion of the body in each part. So maybe there's a whole body in each part. Yeah? Because if there's a whole body in each part, then you put them all together and then you really have a body. But then you look at it. Well, if there really is a whole body in each part, then when you put them all together, you actually have many bodies. You don't have a whole body. You have many bodies. So again, you know, our feeling of, well, no, no, this is a body. Yeah, because we look at it. Yeah, like when when, uh, we're not feeling well, we say our body hurts. Okay. Now, it might just be our stomach hurts, hurts, or it might just be our little toe, but we say, my body hurts. As if our stomach or our little toe were our body. Feel like that, yeah? Yeah, my stomach's my body. It's, you know, my stomach's not somebody else's body, and it's not a flower pot. My stomach is my body. Okay? And my finger is my body, and my brain is my body. Yeah, and my teeth are my body. And, you know, and we, we feel that, and we say that, don't we? But if that were really true, then we, would have, we have many bodies. Mm-hmm. I think more they're in my body. Like my stomach is in my body. Okay, so then there's another way that sometimes we feel like my stomach is in my body. So then it seems like first there's a body. It's like first there's this outline, there's this body, and then we fill it in with all the parts of the body. So my stomach's in my body. We take out that piece of the puzzle and put it in. And my heart's in my body, and we stick it in. And my pancreas is in my body, and we stick it in. Okay. But then we ask... And that makes sense. It feels like that. But then we ask, this body that, was, that the, is the initial outline that was there before any of the parts were put in it, what is that body? Yeah? What's that body that's the outline that you're filling up by putting your organs and parts in it? Is there a body there? Is there some kind of like outline made of, you know, extremely thin something, you know, very, very thin something, and then you put all the organs inside? What is that body? It's something we made up, isn't it? It's an idea, it's a concept, and a label. Yeah, we made that up, and then we put all the things in it. But there's no body that exists there, separate from the parts. Yeah. So you can see, sometimes we feel as if the parts were there first, and then when you get all the parts then they, the gestalt thing, then they are a body. And sometimes we feel like the outline of the body is there, and then the parts come and fill it in. But do either of those, are either of those models accurate? Is that how our body exists? No. But but then what is our body if it's neither of those? If it doesn't exist in either of those ways, what in the world is our body? Yeah? I think in the Zen tradition, they talk about this period, this time when you get the great doubt. I think this is, this is what they're referring to. You know, when you're sitting there looking at it, and wait, I can't say this and I can't say that, but I can't say there's no body either. You know? But, but I can't say that first there's the saran wrap and then the body comes. And I can't say first there's the part and then the body, you know. 
the, first there's the body and then the parts come. And first there's the part and then the body comes. You know, I can't say either of those. But then I can't say there's no body. So then what in the world is there? Yeah? So I think that's what the Zen tradition is getting at when you really meditate. You know, they say you get to this period of great doubt where you're just like, you know, and your intellectual mind just can't solve this puzzle. Yeah? And that's when you have to, when something breaks and you see, oh, there's no inherently existent body there. Yeah? But there's the conventional body. Mm-hmm. So I could, at this example, I can see how it's so powerful to see, as Guy was talking about, to identify what's really there, the object of negation. Because if I drop into the, well, it's just this merely labeled concept, before I actually see that there's no inherently existent body, then mm-hmm. I jump the gun and I come up with this intellectual, well, it's just a merely labeled Impure right. on the parts causing conditions that make this whole little intellectual yeah. thing that doesn't mean anything. Right. So actually seeing, I forget how he said it there, he said it's to, we have to see what actually do, is there, or what actually are we, or we think is there, to really see what yeah. inherently existent yeah. means. Yeah, you know, like really, yeah, what, what, what seems really there? What seems really there? And then, you know, that seems really there, but then how does it exist? It can't exist that way. It can't exist that way. It can't exist that way. So what in the world's going on here? Okay. Okay. Any questions so far? I have one. Uh huh. That time where you had the flower and started peeling up. Off the pedal, uh-huh. when does it quit being a flower? Yeah. You know, that kind of seems to me like it you know, oh, there's the flower. Oh, there's the person. They're really there. But then, if you start taking away the parts, at what point does it stop being a flower? At what point does it stop being a person? You know? Because you take off the first petal, it's still a flower, and the second petal, it's still the flower. So, you know, for a while, it's still the flower. So, But then at one point... You take off one more petal, and then you go, it's not a flower anymore. So then, was the flower in that one petal? (laughs) Because when you took it away, that was the thing that canceled out the flower? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Yeah. So when does it stop being a, a flower? What makes it not a flower? It's, it's, yeah, it's what our concept feels, you know, at some point, and it's going to be different for every person. And that's why we fight and have legal cases, because we're all fighting over when does the flower stop being a flower, because we have different concepts about that. Hmm? A lot of our legal system is we're quarreling over what label to give something. Yeah, we're quarreling over labels. When we look at it that way, but you look at it the other way, no, it's not just labels. That person did something wrong. But what exactly did they do wrong? At what point is it considered a crime? And what actually constitutes the crime? Well, yeah, that's why they have all those like misdemeanor felony, class A, class B, class C. Yeah. With this, without that, it just goes on. Yeah, so that's why you have all these divisions in the in the penal code of different things. But then even within those, it's like it's hard to 
kind of find the exact place where it goes from being this one to this one. Yeah. And everybody's going to have a different idea of when it goes from this one to this one. Which is why your jury selection is important. Not because there's any kind of objective standard. Yeah. So interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. You can see how in the in the meditation on dependent arising, how things arise due to parts becomes really important. Mm-hmm. Because at some point, you have to have a certain amount of parts that the mind can then impute and make that something. Right. If those parts aren't there, then the mind cannot impute right. whatever that object or person is. Right. I yeah. always saw, saw that as the three of them, the, the least interesting of mm-hmm. the three on the depolarization. Uh-huh. This changes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's quite important. Okay, we'll do one more verse here. If the entire body were present in the hands and the other parts, there would be as many bodies as there were parts in, uh, such as the hands. So we already covered that, okay? Then the next verse says, as the body does not exist outside or inside the parts, how could the hands and so forth possess a body? Or how could a body possess the hands and so forth? You know, as it, it, the body, does not exist separately from the hands and so forth, how could it possibly be truly existent? So for the body to be truly existent, it would have to be findable either inside the parts or outside and separate from the parts. But when we examine the parts, we don't find a body. And when we take away the parts, we also don't find a body. So if we can't find a truly existent body, either inside or outside the body, that inside or outside the parts or the collection of parts, then, you know, we can't find it. But look at it as if we can't find a body, you know, because this is the thing we were talking about before uh, when Guy was here, how sometimes it's like we say a truly existent body as if we're creating a scarecrow and then negating it, and how... It's so easy to um, get into this language that we miss the point of the negation, you know. And that's what Junka uh, Rope Dorje was was saying, yeah. That we we set up a straw man and take it take it down, and that's why the meditation on emptiness doesn't do anything to our mind, okay. Whereas if we look. And like, okay, it appears this is a body. Let's look for what the body really is. And we're looking in the appearance that comes to us that we feel is so real. And within that thing that we feel is so real, we can't find a body. That's when it has some impact. Yeah? So we're investigating how does the body really exist? And when you search for it, it's not there. You look in all the parts, and there's no body. And you have to say, there's no body there. Yeah? And you say that in the context of the ultimate analysis. There is no body there. So then, what in the world am I clinging on to? (laughs) Yeah? If there's no body there... What am I clinging to when I die? Yeah? There's, there's nothing there to cling to. It's, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this, like how I didn't cling to any of the other bodies I've had, even this life. Mm-hmm. Like being a baby, I didn't go, oh, I want to keep that little 18-inch body. Yeah. <laughs> I just let it go mindlessly, actually. Uh-huh. Yeah. And now I'm in this kind of body. Mm-hmm. So why would I hold on to this one? My body's changed so much in this life. Yeah. And your body's actually continuing to change moment by moment. So if you didn't hold on to the baby body or the teenage body, why are you holding on to this body? Because tomorrow it's a different body. I know, but then where will I go? 
<laughs> yeah. And then we go, where will I go? Who am I going to be if I don't have a body? I need, my body is what differentiates me from everything else. If I don't have a body, I'm not going to exist. Yeah. There's such strong grasping, isn't there? Um, when you talk about really looking right into the appearance of the body that looks so feels so real, what um, like aspect of the appearance do you are you, are you referring to one um, that's more prominent? Because for me, I like can see my body and touch my body, and have physical sense, but then there's like an more inner. I guess, inner physical sense of being my body. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the stronger, where the stronger grasping is. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not, I don't grasp so much at the visual appearance of my body as much as the, like, feeling that I'm grounded sitting here in the seat and I can move my limbs around. Mm-hmm. And okay. Okay, so there's some kind of innate feeling that I'm sitting here in this body and I can control the body. And it's not like we look at the body and say, that's me. Yeah, but there's just this feeling in which we feel like we're union oneness with the body. Isn't it? I am my body. But if you are your body, then what? When you say, I'm thinking, then it means your body is thinking. If you're your body, then everything the I does, the body does. So the eye thinks, the eye is happy and sad, the eye goes on to the next, you know, has continuity to the next life. Does the body have any of those? No. So that means that this feeling we have of, you know, just this presence here of being me, which is the body, something's wrong with that. Something's wrong with that very innate, automatic feeling we have. Because if, if, if that feeling were correct, then the body, would be, the body and the eye would be the same, and everything the eye did, the body would do. And everything the body did, the self would do. So when the body goes out of existence at the time of death, the self would also go out of existence. That's not true. And when we say, I'm thinking, then the body would be thinking. Both the self and the body are, are different things, aren't they? We can't use those two words interchangeably. So this feeling we have of, I'm here and I am my body, something's wrong with it. So even though it feels so natural, it feels so automatic, it feels so right, it's wrong. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? You know? And so, you know, when we really sit and look at this, it's like, whoa, you know, the way I apprehend things is way out of whack with how they actually exist. Just hearing you describe it in that way is maybe the first time I've really gotten how the, that scientific materialist view could mm-hmm. really stay cemented in somebody's mind. Mm-hmm. You know, that very idea that I'm in my body and when I, when I die, that's the end. Yeah. Because if we are completely union one, then there's, there's no other solution. Right. So yeah. So it actually makes more sense to me yeah. where that point of view is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have to stop now. (laughs) 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 Thank God the teaching's only one hour long. Otherwise, I might lose myself. (laughs) This way, at least a part of me is remaining, kinda, you know. Yeah, I want nirvana with the remainder. I want nirvana with the remainder of samsara. (laughs) Yuck. Yeah.
But then you see that when you, you hold on to this idea that I am my body because there's this feeling, then you see how much you suffer. Because at the time of death, that's just a prescription for suffering, isn't it? Yeah? What is, the, is the feeling, like, would you classify it as a feeling or as the tactile sense perception? It's, it's nothing. It's our, it's our concept. It's, concept. it's totally our concept of here I am in the body. It's not a tactile sensation. It's not a visual sensation. It's, it's not a feeling of happiness, unhappiness, or neutrality. It's a concept. It lets me say I'm aging. Yeah? Huh? It lets me say I'm, I'm aging. aging. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense anymore after you. <laughs> yeah. Right. When you say I'm aging, what's aging? I now in the body. Okay. So we can spend some time on this in our meditation. It gets really kind of juicy. <laughs> May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all other inner hindrances. Grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual masters be stable and their divine actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Lohsan's teachings dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. Viratna Mandala Kamniryatayami Due to this merit may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful Tenzin Gyatso Chenresi, May you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders who spread the view of dependent arising and non-violent actions in the ten directions, and especially at Travosti Abbey in the West Florida.